Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 220. It is August of 2018, and in today's episode, we're going to start off with your overwhelming response to Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 219. I asked you for your feedback, and oh my gosh, you gave it to me. So we will be talking about that. Also, the archive lady, Melissa Barker, is here. She's going to be helping you set up your archive in a backpack. Sounds good got some comments for you from your DNA guy, Diane Southerd, on how our DNA test results are becoming much more specific. And also a blast from the past. These were gems that were originally part of Genealogy Gems podcast episode 19 and 20, way back in the day, in the beginning of this podcast. And of course, back then, the sound wasn't quite as good. So we've remastered these. And this gem, it was kind of a two parter. It's all about finding books about your ancestors experiences, and finding your German ancestors specific place of origin. But first, I've got some exciting genealogy news for you. There's a new conference on the way. Uh, This is coming to you from the folks at MyHeritage. And of course, they're one of our wonderful sponsors here on the podcast. And they just announced the registration is now open for MyHeritage Live. This is coming to Oslo, Norway, November 2nd through the 4th of 2018. And I am so honored and happy to be one of their featured presenters. I will be there talking about newspaper research and specifically newspaper research in my heritage, how to find all those great gems that are out there on your ancestors. So we've got all the details for you in the show notes. Uh, You can sign up there through the website. Wow, what an amazing place. I've never been to Norway or even Sweden. So I'm kind of hoping to make this a twofer. We're going to head over to the conference, speak to all the wonderful folks there. And Lacey's going to be coming with me over to Oslo. And then we're hoping to spend a couple of days over in Sweden and getting to know the Larson ancestors just a little bit more. Of course, these aren't my ancestors, but they are Lacey's. And she's actually really looking forward to this. So I'm very excited about it. You know, you got to love when the next generation gets involved in the family history. So I'll take it. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, You can learn more about it over at live2018.myheritage.com. All right, well, coming up next, we're going to head straight to the mailbox. I asked you all what you thought of the departure from our kind of normal format here at Genealogy Gems. And in episode 219, how we kind of took a case study approach, and really even more so a storytelling approach to Genealogy Gems. So coming up next, we're going to hear from you. Letter 
from my hometown. Well, of course, this is episode 220, and in episode 219, we took a, a real different approach to the Genealogy Gems podcast and devoted the entire hour to a case study. And that was the story of Julianne Mangin's family. And she is one of our listeners who wrote in and shared with me her compelling story and the research that she had done. And I just thought, you know, this type of a case is really so representative of what so many of us face in in different areas of our research. So I wanted to really explore it. I wanted to tell the story in a way that I hope you found entertaining, and then explore some of the strategies that she used to find some of her answers. So I just want to share with you some of the emails. And I have to say, the overwhelming response was very, very positive. You guys really enjoyed this kind of format. And uh, Karen wrote in, she says, I really enjoyed podcast episode 219. All of your podcasts are informative and inspiring. But following a journey like Julianne Mansion's in depth was riveting. You can empathize with every question that she pursued. You learn by example in the context of a real story. But also you want to know what she finds out. It brings the hobby to life. Thanks for your continual evolution and innovation. I really agree with you, Karen, in terms of how it brings the hobby to life. You know, it's not just talking about the mechanics of doing the search, but it's really bringing those mechanics into the story itself and seeing what happens. What does that reveal to us? And um, I'm really glad that you enjoyed that aspect of it. Tim wrote in, says, I really enjoyed the recent podcast number 219 with Julianne Mangin. And I hope that you produce more episodes like that one. When I'm not researching my own family, I enjoy listening to stories of other people finding about their family history and how their discoveries impact them today. Shows such as Who Do You Think You Are and Finding Your Roots do a great job. I do get tired of the celebrity nature of these shows. My favorite series about family history has been The Generations Project by BYU TV. Unfortunately, that series is no longer in production, and there hasn't been anything quite like it to take its place. The focus of this show was on normal, everyday people connecting to one ancestor or one generation in a particular way, often by visiting the actual locations their ancestors once lived. The episodes would try to find a question about an ancestor or discover some piece of information that filled in a gap about a particular person. This episode reminded me of that format. The research tips were a great addition. Please produce more of these interesting stories and up your good work. Thanks, Tim. Uh, You know, I I think I'm feeling the same way in terms of all the celebrity stories that we hear. And and those are interesting because we're all connected to that person in some way. We've seen them on something. So it does have a connection built in. But certainly the stories themselves, once you get past the fact that you know that celebrity, the stories are um, pretty much anybody's game. Everybody has interesting stories in their family. And I loved exploring one of somebody who wasn't famous, and kind of, as you said, kind of proving the point that a good story is a good story. It doesn't matter if the person's a celebrity or not. So thank you so much for writing in. Finally, I have a comment here with a question from Margie, who lives up in Washington State, my old stomping ground. 
She says, this morning on my commute to class, one hour from home, I happily turned on my iPod to listen to your Genealogy Gems podcast, thinking I was going to hear what I always hear and enjoy, but was pleasantly surprised to hear something very, very new from you and very, very interesting and fun to listen to. First, I love, love, love case studies. So this format was something I have always enjoyed. And my mom was three-quarter French-Canadian from Massachusetts. So any information on my ethnic background, of course, is especially interesting. And I have an ancestor who died in the Massachusetts State Hospital, and I have thought about trying to obtain her medical records. Wow, Margie, you had so many parallels to Julianne's story. Margie says, thanks so much for this change of pace. I have gleaned some ideas just from the podcast so far, but plan to study your show notes to really get the most out of this fun and fascinating story. And my thanks to Ms. Manjin for sharing. Oh, absolutely. I so appreciate that Julianne let us just really dig in deep to her family history. Margie has a PS here. She says, by the way, I may not have listened well as I was driving, but does she really have proof that the father, Philippe, abandoned the family? Or perhaps he felt it was better to stay away as they were well cared for. Or did he write or visit them from time to time? I ask because he felt bold enough to ask a son to house him in his old age. While I agreed that son was very generous and forgiving, but could it be that maybe there was some sort of contact since he knew where the son was and the son took him in? And if there had been no contact, how did he know where to find his son? While he did get in trouble with the law, it also seems he came to the rescue of his sister-in-law and nephew in their time of need. Just some of my thoughts. I hate throwing people under the bus. I believe everybody has some redeeming qualities, but maybe my glasses are too rosy. Thanks again for a very interesting and entertaining podcast. Well, Margie, I know how it is. You're, you're in the car and thankfully, you were paying attention to the road. So you might have missed a couple of nuances of the episode. And, and that, of course, is totally normal. Um, we talked about actually, in fact, I recorded a segment of the interview with Julianne where I posed exactly the same question. Can we really draw the conclusion that Philippe had abandoned his family? Because my thought was that it's very possible that Graziella's parents maybe had kind of grown a little weary of Philippe and kind of strong-armed the situation maybe to take care of the kids and to, to farm them out to other relatives. But we don't know, do we? We don't know for sure. And if you listen a second time, you'll notice that Julianne talks about the fact that Philippe did call for a priest when Graziella was passing. And uh, he had maintained communications with the state hospital. So he absolutely was remaining connected as her husband and monitoring the situation. It wouldn't be a surprise at all to find that he had actually done the same with the children. That seems to make sense because that's kind of in line with how he behaved with Graziella. Julianne does say that her mother's story of Philippe abandoning Graziella turns out to be incorrect in the episode because of that proof from the state hospital records that he'd visited her and had gotten the priest. I think Julianne quickly touched on the rescuing side of Philippe and with Marie and Charles in the interview as well. We didn't go real in depth into that. So there was a side of him that really kind of helped out that family and uh, stayed for whatever time frame. And we don't really know if they were romantically involved or not, but in whatever way he did step in and help out Marie 
with her young son, Charles, uh, when his brother was in some trouble. So we may never know, but I agree with you. We want to caution against jumping to those conclusions. And we see evidence for both sides of that, don't we? The trouble and issues that Philip had, but also the caretaking and the connecting that he stayed involved with. And of course, that's all within the context of that time frame, which is so different than today in terms of resources and accessibility and getting here and there and the whole nine yards. So we want to keep all of that in historical context as well. Thanks so much, Margie, for your comments. I so appreciate it. And I appreciate all of you. We literally got dozens and dozens and dozens of emails from so many of you. I tried to respond to many of you. And at some point, we got a little overwhelmed. But I just love hearing that you heard the value on the level of just a really good story. And I hope you took that story and you shared it with people who aren't necessarily genealogists. You know, because one of the hottest topics in podcasting right now are crime podcasts. They are true crime and these riveting stories of things that happened. And I listen to those. Lacey is a rabid fan of those podcasts. And I'm thinking, my gosh, we have those in all of our families. So that made a lot of sense. That's a wonderful well to kind of go and dip the bucket into and bring it here to Genealogy Gems. But I also am just so impressed how many of you listened so closely and were able to glean things that helped you in your own research. So I didn't want folks feeling like I'm just telling a story and there's nothing there to use. You really got the usable information that was all tucked in there. And certainly as we move forward, and I hope to bring you more of these kinds of stories, we'll be doing very much the same. Also in the mailbox, not long ago in my weekly newsletter, which comes out on Thursdays, hope you've signed up for that. Make sure that you head to our homepage at genealogygems.com and click that subscribe button to the newsletter. That's how you really stay in touch with everything that we're doing. Well, in the weekly newsletter, I shared a tech tip that got a grateful response from Susan. So I thought I'd share both the tip and her comment. I shared a tech tip that I included in one of the classes I've recently taught. And here's the situation. Have you ever accidentally closed a browser tab too quickly? You know, so you're working on your computer, you're working in a web browser, I use Chrome, you might use Firefox. But sometimes you you go, you're, you're thinking, oh, I've got too many tabs open and you go to click one close and you realize, oh, no, I, I still want that. Maybe you were following a breadcrumb trail to get to a very specific record, or you found a great web page buried really deep in a website, and there's that gut-wrenching moment when you close the browser accidentally, and that has happened to all of us. But never fear, because you can restore that closed tab by pressing the following keys on your keyboard. Control, Shift, T. Think of the T as for tab. Okay, so Control, Shift, T. And as you keep entering in that command, web pages will continue to open up in the reverse order that they were closed. So even if it wasn't the last page you closed, you can still restore it. You can also right click on the new tab at the top of your screen. And in that pop up menu, you can also select reopen closed tab. Pretty nifty. And I am shocked how many times I use this every day. Um, I, I hope it comes in handy for you. Well, Susan wrote in and she says, wow, did that come in handy? She says, I just want to thank you for the control shift T tip. 
I cannot tell you how many times this would have come in handy. But now I know it and close tabs at will knowing I can still get back to them. I love your podcasts and letters. When I retire, I will have more time for genealogy and I can't wait. These ancestors want to be found. That's so true. <laughs> and, and it's amazing because you know, when you think about it in today's world, we can do so much even just in an hour break for lunch. But oh, you get retired. Think how many hours you could spend. Oh, I love it. Thanks so much, Susan, for writing in. You know, I often get replies to our weekly newsletter with thanks like these, and it reminds me just how valuable that free newsletter is for so many of you. Many of you were affected by new legislation that took effect in the EU on Friday, May 25th of 2018. It's called the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. And that new law aims to protect your personal information and requires businesses and organizations to be transparent about why they are collecting your data and how they're going to use it. So although we are a U.S.-based company, we are proud to have followers from around the world, and we sure do. And I want to assure everybody that your information is safe, it's secure with Genealogy Gems. And we've updated our privacy policy to reflect that. We want to fully comply with all these laws, of course. And in our show notes, I've got a link directly to the entire privacy policy. So if you ever have a question, you can go click there. And you'll also see a little button at the bottom of most pages that you visit on our website. Additionally, in order to comply and as a show of good faith, we've sent an email out to those of you who live in the EU and those who didn't provide a location when you signed up for the newsletter. So you might live in the U.S., but if you didn't indicate which state you're in or that you're in the U.S., you would have gotten this email from us. So we just need, had to ask you to reconfirm your newsletter subscription. Please click the opt-in button in that newsletter so that there's no disruption to your newsletter subscription. And of course, the newsletter is absolutely free, full of great free stuff and bargains we've found and premium membership information. If you're not getting yours, check your spam folder, check to see if you see perhaps if you're in Gmail, look at that updates or promotions tab. Sometimes newsletters show up there. And look for that opt back in email if you are in the EU or if by chance you think that maybe you're one of those who didn't indicate where you live when you first signed up. And if you are having a little bit of trouble keeping things out of the spam folder, it always is a really good idea. Head to your contacts in your email service and add genealogy gems podcast at gmail.com as one of your trusted contacts. And we have some bonus content for those of you listening in the Genealogy Gems app, which of course is free in the Google Play Store for Android, and it's just $2.99 in the Apple iTunes App Store. If you are listening through the Genealogy Gems app, your bonus content for this episode, number 220, is my roundup of my favorite Christmas in August crafts that you can make. These are craft projects that course, revolve around family history. And that is going to be in your bonus content. So when you open up our app, and you go to this episode 220, you're looking for the little icon that looks like a present. Because in the present is the bonus. Okay, so tap that. And you can do that with any episode. Not every single episode has bonus content. But when we've got something extra to share, that's where it's going to be. So look for your little gift icon in the app. All right. All right, coming up next, the Archive Lady. 
Get ready to get your archive in a backpack. Bring me a letter from my proud old dad Who knows that we are winning And I'll bet he's glad For more than any other A line from my old mother Bring me a letter from my As I travel the world talking about genealogy, folks are always stopping me and asking for my advice on organizing and securing their family history research. And my standard answer is plant your family tree in your own backyard and share branches online. Planting your tree in your own backyard, it means keeping one master family tree in a software file right there on your own computer. That gives you ownership, control of privacy and security, and one central place to organize everything that you learn about your family. And of course, my software of choice and the one that I use is Roots Magic. I find that its tree building tools are second to none. And with Roots Magic Web Hints, you can see what record hints are available on Family Search, Find My Past, and My Heritage. And now you have the ability to synchronize your Roots Magic database with your ancestry tree and get those ancestry.com web hints right there inside of Roots Magic. These are features that are really critical and they're exclusive to Roots Magic. So plant your tree today in Roots Magic and watch it grow. Get started at rootsmagic.com. This is Melissa Barker, the Archive Lady, and today I'm going to talk to you about a new prototype project called Archivist in a Backpack. This new prototype project from the Southern Historical Collection at the Wilson Special Collections Library is called Archivist in a Backpack. This project is one element of a three-year program, $877,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Through this grant, Southern Historical Collection will be promoting community-driven archiving. They will be working with individuals and communities in an effort to record and preserve local history. The archivists from Southern Historical Collection will provide training, technical know-how, supplies, and equipment that will make the job much easier. Using rolling suitcases that contain items to help community-based historians begin building a local archive, the archivists hope to teach archival skills to those who are building an archive in their community. Included in the archiving kits are items like portable scanners, gloves, archival sleeves, archival file folders, soft number two pencils, and instructions on how to use these items when working with historical and genealogical records. Josephine McRobbie, Community Archivist at the Southern Historical Collection at the Wilson Special Collections Library, says, When community members learn these skills and gain familiarity with common tools and equipment like acid-free folders to portable audio recorders, it is empowering and builds their sense of identity as historians and community archivists. McRobbie and her colleagues want people to know that telling the stories of their lives in their own community are well within reach and that their rewards can be tremendous. 
simply making good records of what is gathered and keeping everything in a cool, dry place will go a long way towards preserving stories for future generations. The project is only in its first year, and in the second and third year, they are planning on refining the program. They will assess the work done to date and create new kits based on user feedback. They will also share their experience with additional community partners and with the archival profession. So keep an eye out for the Archivist in the Backpack project in your area, ready to do great work for the community. And you can create a checklist for your own Archivist backpack for the next time when you visit an archive. Some suggestions from this archive lady that you should put in your Archivist backpack are gloves, soft number two pencils, portable scanners, digital cameras, thumb drives, and even your laptop computer. So until next time, this is the Archive Lady wishing you the best. And remember, it's not all online, so contact and visit an archives today. Gem is a blast from the past. Now, as you know, the first 20 episodes of the Genealogy Gems podcast are no longer available in the podcast feed. You won't see them listed there. A lot of what we covered way back in 2007 would be out of date at this point. And I also, you know, back then didn't have the same audio equipment that I have today. So I took them off the feed, but we've been slowly remastering the content that is still very valid today and getting that republished into new podcast episodes. Well, today I've got segments for you that originally came from episodes 19 and 20. We're about to the end of remastering and republishing all of those first 20 episodes. I'm going to share two timeless topics with you. The first one is on taking a look sideways into your family's history. And then the second is on finding a German hometown. So let's blast to the past. Well, let's get right to our first gem, which I like to call a long look sideways. piece of genealogical advice that says, if you get stuck with your own ancestor, look sideways at their siblings, their aunts and uncles. Well, we're going to stretch this idea even further today. We're going to look at folks who aren't even related to us in order to get a clearer view of our ancestors' lives. I came by this idea somewhat by accident one day when I was hunting around on eBay. I had made a long list of all the different names and places and occupations and such that pertain to my ancestors, and I was doing an eBay search on each one. And of course, I was setting up eBay favorite searches, like I talked about in episode three, 
so that eBay would email me in the future if a new item came up. Well, I knew it was a long shot, but I went ahead and searched on the name of a little town in Oklahoma where my grandfather was born in 1918. I mean, this was a little town, and there was no good reason why there should be anything on eBay about it. I mean, I doubt anyone had ever even made a postcard of the place. But I typed in Kinta, Oklahoma anyway. Lo and behold, an auction listing showed up in the results. It was for a book called The Kinta Years by Janice Holt Giles. I was intrigued, so I bid a couple of dollars and I won the book and I waited for the postman. But when the book arrived, I opened it up and inside the front cover was a map of the town of Kinta. I wondered, could this book really be about my grandfather's hometown? My hometown is one horse town, but it's big enough for me. The book begins with Giles as a young child meeting her new neighbor in Kinta. A quick internet search told me that Janice Giles was born in Arkansas somewhere between about 1905 to 1909. There are some conflicting reports on that. And her family moved to Kinta in the Indian Territory when she was very young. So let's say she was about five years old. That would make this book about Kinta set around 1913. So I was just about to read a book describing the little Indian Territory town in the same decade that my grandfather was born there. I won't go into it all here, but let me tell you, it was just a wonderful, amazing journey for me as Janice described the people, the sights, and the sounds of the town and the prairie and the towns that surrounded it. Well, let me assure you that somewhere out there, there are authors who've taken the time to capture the sights and sounds of your ancestors' hometowns. To date, I've collected at least a half a dozen books on eBay that do just that. And I hope by hearing about my finds, you'll get excited and motivated to do some searching and find your ancestors' localities on the written page. Most of the books I'm going to tell you about were found on eBay in the last five years, and they're published by independent authors, not by historical societies or genealogical societies. Some are part fiction, some are nonfiction, but they're all eye-opening. By now, you're familiar with Raymond Cook. Remember the excerpts of his autobiographies in the first couple of podcast episodes? Well, Raymond was born in Tunbridge Wells, England in 1894. Josephine Butcher published a book called Tunbridge Wells, I Was Born in the Pantiles. In it, she reminisces about the town from about 1910 to 1990. She mentions over 300 names of residents, as well as a ton of information about the customs and the way of life there in the early part of the 20th century. Another great find was a book called Still Life, Sketches from a Tunbridge Wells Childhood by Richard Cobb. The publisher describes the book this way. His is a chronicle of growing up in a prosperous southeastern community, of the middle classes, the servants, and an army of shopkeepers, of largely harmless snobbery, pretension, and genteel scandal. In precise and generally loving detail, Cobb presents a world in miniature, a place of wonder and discovery. Oh, wow, what could be better than that? Now, another little town I searched on that I figured was a real long shot was Blossom Prairie, Texas, where my paternal great-grandmother was born. And sure enough, I now own the book, Rebecca of Blossom Prairie, by Maureen Walpole Lyles. 
She describes Rebecca's journey from Tennessee to Texas in 1851. And she talks about the Red River County as they entered it on foot alongside their wagon. Part fiction, it's on a great foundation of historical facts. The book took me down the roads that my great-grandmother likely walked herself. The next book I found was written by the famous Swedish author Thyra Farah Bjorn in 1956. It is called Papa's Way. The book tells the tale of Thyra's mama, Maria, setting her sights on the handsome bachelor, Parson Franzen, in her little Swedish village. It explores their faith, the customs, and Swedish life in a very heartwarming way. With those of you with Swedish ancestors, I think you will not only enjoy this book as a glimpse into life in the old country, as well as their story of their immigration, but also her follow-up book, Mama's Way. The last book I want to share with you is a funny little book that I think I actually found at a garage sale. It's called Anything Can Happen, and it was written by George and Helen Papashivli. And I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly by any means. And it was written in 1940. The first two sentences explain why I grabbed it. At five in the morning, the engine stopped, and after 37 days, the boat was quiet. We were in America. As I was leafing through the pages while preparing for this podcast, I definitely got an itch to read this one again. It's a quick book. It's about 202 pages. And I remember laughing out loud as the Russian George tells his story of being a greenhorn coming off the boat and making his way through the streets of New York. And it's written from his perspective as the newbie that he was at the time, with all the mispronunciations and mistakes that he made along the way. If you have ancestors who immigrated in the late 19th and early 20th century, I think you'll definitely get a kick out of this book. And I just checked eBay, and there are several copies out there for sale. And used books on Amazon would also be another great way to get a copy. So there you have it. Get out there and start hunting. You may come up with some summertime reading that is entertaining, as well as enriching your knowledge of your family's history. Okay, have you visited backblaze.com slash Lisa yet? If you don't have cloud backup for your computer yet, everything on it is vulnerable to loss. Your pictures, your master genealogy database, files for work, the everyday business of your household, losing all of that at once is as devastating as it sounds. That's why I did my homework and I found a cloud-based backup service provider. I chose Backblaze. It runs in the background 24-7 automatically saving copies of everything, including my precious video files. Did you know that some of the other leading services actually skip your video files when they do the backup? Hello, not good. And Backblaze is so easy to use. I love their free app that allows me to access all my files if I need to from my smartphone or my tablet. Most importantly, the service is totally affordable for real people. It's just $5 a month. So don't wait to ensure that all your files are safe. Do it now. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head over to backblaze.com slash Lisa and get that $5 a month deal. Check it out for yourself. You could even do a free trial. That's backblaze.com slash Lisa. Where are the good 
last episode, we talked about finding your German ancestor's hometown in response to a question by one of my listeners, Elizabeth Love. We talked about pulling together family information and going through the census records, locating their passenger list and their naturalization records, and cross-checking the information in the Family Search database. The hope is that somewhere along that process, you're going to come up with the name of their village in Germany. But what if, as in Elizabeth's case, the passenger list and the naturalization records don't state their place of origin? Well, here's a checklist of other types of records that might contain this information. These are all items you're going to want to obviously find, even if you've already found the village name. But it's a good reminder that information about the old country can pop up in a lot of different places. So we'll be looking for death certificates, marriage records, church records. Uh, You may find it mentioned in an obituary. Occasionally, people will also put the home village on a tombstone, or you may find them in cemetery records. Also check out probate records and delayed birth certificates. These were often created when Social Security came into effect in the 1940s, and people had to go back and recreate their birth certificate. There's also a book series called The Germans to America, and it should be consulted if your German ancestors arrived between 1850 and 1897. And I'll have a link for more information on that in the show notes. And lastly, if you know which port in Germany that your ancestor departed from, you might be able to locate their hometown in German passenger departure lists. I'll have a link on the show notes to a variety of websites regarding the ports of Bremen and as well as other passenger lists. And of course, if all else fails, look sideways at brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, even friends. Go through these same steps as I've just outlined for these folks. If you can determine where one of them was born, you'll have an excellent place to look in Germany for your own ancestors. Also, have you determined if your ancestors had traveling companions on their way to America? Check the passenger list and look into their backgrounds. And go back to the census and check out your ancestors' first recorded American neighborhood. Where were their neighbors from? Remember, folks often settled near family and friends from the old country who'd already immigrated to the U.S. earlier. I find that this technique is one that often gets overlooked, but I really think that there are some gems there to be found. So definitely go back and check out the neighbors. Now, I told you in the last episode that I would tell you about how the Freedom of Information Act yielded me even more great naturalization records that even included photographs of my ancestors. Well, back in the year 2000, I sent a letter off to the U.S. Department of Justice, Immigration and Naturalization Service, asking for my great-grandmother's complete immigration file. At that time, I wasn't really aware of any official form. I'm not even sure if they had one then to submit. So I just gave them all the pertinent information that I knew about her and requested it under the Freedom of Information Act, which is a federal statute, and it allows any person the right to obtain federal agency records unless the records or part of the record are protected from disclosure by any of the nine exemptions in the law. Now, in most cases, requesting an ancestor's immigration file is not going to fall under any of those exemptions. It took six months to receive a reply, and yes, that is the norm. But the wait was worth it. I received a copy of her four-page file, which included a copy of her petition for naturalization, which I already had from the Madera County Courthouse. But it also included two documents that I had never seen before. 
First was the final paper signed by the Madera County judge granting great-grandma citizenship. And second was a copy of her certificate of naturalization. And there in the bottom left corner was a photograph of Louise Sporin that I had never seen before, along with her signature. It describes her as a white female of medium complexion with brown hair and brown eyes and a whopping five foot three inches tall, although I'm surprised that she was even that tall. And it states that she was married and a native German. And finally, it did state her home address in 1941. Well, I wrote for her husband's file, which also included two never-before-seen photos. All in all, it was well worth the effort and the wait. I've even heard stories of folks who've received 20-page packets, can you imagine, on ancestors who, for whatever reason, generated a lot of interest by the government. So you never know what you're going to get. A lot also depends on the year that your ancestor was naturalized. And according to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service website, you should write to the clerk of the court in the county where naturalization occurred for records prior to September 27th of 1906. Now, I don't really like taking no for an answer. Imagine that. And it doesn't say that they don't have the records. So, you know me, I would write and I'd ask for them anyway. Who knows? Maybe they are just up on a high shelf and they don't want to have to pull them down. Okay, I'm kidding there. But you see where I'm coming from. Ask, ask, ask. And sometimes you shall receive. In this case, it doesn't cost you a thing to ask because no fees are required when you make the request. And the first 100 pages of copying and two hours of search time are free. So let's run through the asking process, shall we? First, go to the show notes for episode 20 of the Genealogy Gems podcast, and you will find a link to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services website page on Freedom of Information Requests. At the bottom of the page on the left is a link to the two-page form called G-639 that you're going to need. Click on the link and print out the form. Now fill out the information as completely as possible. When you have to wait six months for an answer, you don't want the reply to be a request for more information. So fill it out as completely as you can. Next, make a copy of the form for your follow-up records and keep it in a pending file in your desk. Now, I'm not a big fan of paper, so I scan such things and store the file in a pending file in my genealogy folder on my hard drive. You know, there's an episode we're going to have to do is talking about computer organization for genealogy records. That's one of my favorite subjects. But to continue, put the original form in an envelope and clearly mark on the front, Freedom of Information Request. That's going to cut down the time that it circulates around not knowing where to, to end up. And go ahead and mail it. Now, here's a tip. Mark in your calendar six months from today to follow up on the request. Also indicate that the copy is in your pending file. Can you tell I've lost a few things in the past? <laughs> well, this is a tried and true solution to that problem. And there you have it, a gem that few people actually try. But I hope you're going to be one of them that does. And be sure and email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com and let me know the results of your request. I'd love to hear about it, and I am sure that the other listeners would, too.
Our sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage, which has over 70 million members worldwide. If you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you want to be. Post your tree on MyHeritage and start to see the magic as they automatically match it up with other trees, not just with genealogists in the country where you live, but around the world. Trees aren't primary sources, but they are excellent leads. I uploaded a portion of my family tree that contains my German heritage, and that's where I was really hoping to make a breakthrough, and very quickly it happened. I received a message from a distant cousin in Germany. That was my first international cousin contact. But there's more at MyHeritage. Their unique and powerful search system, it's called Record Matches. It constantly calls over 5 billion historical records for your family. It's the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles, books, and other free text documents. It is also the first to translate names between languages. Find out what MyHeritage can do to help you grow your family tree. Visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started, so there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com. One of the questions I get asked most often is to predict the future of genetic genealogy. While I don't have a crystal ball, I am certain that the future of genetic genealogy holds two things, automation and specificity. Hello, Genealogy Gems podcast listeners. This is Diane Southard, your DNA guide. Now we're going to save the automation discussion for another day. It was hinted at in the Roots Tech announcements by both MyHeritage and Living DNA. But today, we're going to focus on the exciting topic of specificity. In the 11 years since the launch of the autosomal DNA test, we have seen an incredible increase in the specificity of our origins reports. In 2007, 23andMe was breaking down your heritage into three main categories, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Now, 11 years later, after several revisions, they have released a new update expanding their Origins product from 31 categories to 150. That's an increase in specificity of (laughs) 4,900%. All companies are moving in this same direction, with Ancestry DNA releasing a small update in April 2018 to try to provide more detail to the story of your ancestral heritage. We know this spike in specificity is eminent, not only from the changes at our testing companies, but also by monitoring our reports from academia. For example, in December of 2017, there was a study released by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, working with the Genealogical Society of Ireland. The study details a component that's especially important to genealogists. Time. While it might be interesting to know that you had an ancestor who once walked the moors, it would be even more valuable to know when he was there. In this study, they can see both the current genetic clusters in Ireland, they report 10 of them, but they also measure how genetically similar those clusters are to other places. That means that we can not only tell you where you're from in Ireland, but also where you were before that. It's a bit like the sticker you see on the fruit at the grocery store. Right now, it's in your store, but the sticker tells you where it was before that. 
This same kind of research is reflected in ancestry DNA's migrations, which are a feature of their origins report. Migration communities, like lower Midwest settlers, identify your ancestral location hundreds of years ago, as opposed to the regions, like Europe West, which identify your ancestral location thousands of years ago. Sticking with the Irish theme, we see that ancestry DNA places Ireland in a region with Scotland and Wales. This large region is then broken up into four subregions, each with its own subregions. Are you ready for this? For a total of 24 different Irish categories. You can view that image of all those categories by clicking on See All 150 Regions at the bottom of your ethnicity window. Much like the study from Academia in Ireland, we can track these Irish groups through time using tools at Ancestry DNA. Essentially, if you find yourself in any of the subregions, then you know that your connection to that particular place was likely within a genealogical time frame, like the last 300 years. But if you do not find yourself in a subgroup, but they show that you have no connection to those subregions, it either means your connection to Ireland is farther back than the 300-ish years, or that the subregion you are from has not yet been identified. Currently, living DNA has the most specificity in the UK, as they can distinguish between 42 regions in England, Wales, Ireland, and Scotland. Living DNA has announced similar regional projects in other countries, including Germany. But even with this specificity, it can be tricky to make genealogical connections between your maps and your family tree. In the coming months and years, even that will change. As the databases get bigger, it will be the connections between people who are tested that will add to the layer of genealogical specificity that we're missing. It will be less about if you have a specific piece of DNA tagging you as from Cork, Ireland, and more about the fact that your DNA connects you to an entire group of people who have documented ancestors from Cork. This may seem like a small distinction, but it makes all the difference, and it is the driving principle behind Ancestry DNA's migration tools and what living DNA is hinting at as well. So what will the future hold? Well, nobody has all the answers, and that's part of the fun of it. But one thing I am certain of, the future does hold more specific answers to our genetic genealogy questions. And you can be sure you'll read all about it here at Genealogy Gems. So until next time, this is Diane Southerd, your DNA guide. Hello, Genealogy Gems. This is Sunny Morton. Have you ever found a great family history story online or even just a fact for your tree, but it didn't have any documentation? It just kills me. I want to believe these things I find. I want to add them to my tree, but there's no proof. I don't want to collect family myths. I want an accurate tree with real stories. So not long ago, I found a fantastic biographical sketch on family search for my third great-grandfather, Washington McClellan. It had all kinds of specific genealogical details and stories about him being a child laborer in the woolen mills in Yorkshire, England, then emigrating to the United States as an orphan 19-year-old, learning to be a harness maker, homesteading in northern Idaho, and even being a Mormon bishop. But no sources. So how much of it was true? 
And what else is there to his story that isn't told there? Well, Lisa Louise Cook and Diane Southard and I have put our heads together to answer that question. At the Genealogy Roots Unconference in Sandy, Utah, on October 4th and 5th, 2018, we will show you how we reconstructed his fascinating life story with solid documentation and beefed up historical context and even DNA clues, and how you can use the same kinds of strategies for your family stories too. Here's a teaser. Each of the genealogy giants, that's Ancestry, Family Search, Find My Past, and My Heritage, reveals something about Washington McClellan. Family Search has a solid, well-sourced tree leading back to him, which is where I found that biographical sketch. It also had a few great pictures of him, but one was so small I couldn't even see it, and it was an image of a photocopy. But over on Ancestry, someone had uploaded a larger file size of that photocopied picture so I could at least see it. Then when I looked on my heritage, someone had uploaded a digitized version of the actual picture, not just the photocopy. Even better! On just about all the genealogy giants, I found Washington's ship passenger list entry. But Ancestry also had this neat little link to learn more about the ship he traveled on. Ancestry alone helped me find Washington easily in one of the U.S. censuses, reminding me that the search experience can be very different on each of the giants for the same record collections. And of course, not all the record collections are the same on each site. A city directory on Ancestry tells me the acreage and assessed value of his farm in 1903. Cool. Two Utah newspaper articles I found on my heritage confirmed the claim that Washington was a Mormon bishop. Cool. And Find My Pass showed me yet another newspaper article listing Washington's name, along with everyone in his travel company who arrived together in Salt Lake City in 1879. Very cool. Those who come to the Genealogy Roots Unconference will learn how to make these kinds of discoveries on each of the genealogy giants, but also how we applied Google and DNA strategies to Washington McClellan's stories and how you can do the same with your family when you ask the right questions, organize what you learn, and reassess and analyze. You'll also see the ideas each of us has for sharing our discoveries, and I promise they're all very different and some are super fun. This Genealogy Roots Unconference event will be in Sandy, Utah, Thursday and Friday, October 4th and 5th, 2018. Visit genealogygems.com forward slash Utah to learn more. Profile America, Friday, August 3rd. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Poet Emma Lazarus composed those words 135 years ago to help raise funds for a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. But on this date, the year before, Congress enacted one of the first immigration limitations in our history. The law barred entry to people thought likely to become a public charge or burden on society. Immigration laws have been much revised since 1882 and controversial. But America has long accepted more immigrants than any other nation. Of the roughly 319 million resident population estimated in the American Community Survey, over 42 million were foreign-born. 
20 million of these were naturalized citizens. You can find more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. I hope you enjoyed this blast from the past. Of course, head to the show notes for this episode. It's number 220. And you'll find those in your Genealogy Gems podcast app. Just scroll below and you'll see all the notes there. Or you can head to genealogygems.com and under podcast, go to the Genealogy Gems podcast and click on episode 220. We've got all the updated information and some great follow-up articles for you there as well. Well, that's it for Genealogy Gems podcast episode 220. Thanks so much to my podcast production team. I couldn't do this show without them. Uh, The content team includes Sunny Morton, contributing editor with additional content by Your DNA Guide, Diane Southard, and the archive lady, Melissa Barker. Hannah Fullerton, my daughter, is the show's audio editor, and many of the photos that you will see in the show notes were taken by Hannah. And of course, Lacey Cook is your happiness manager, and she's the one who's receiving your emails and forwarding them on to me and helping you out with your premium membership and anything else that you need at Genealogy Gems. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. 